Please open your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 7. Uh, The song we just sang, Psalm 32, Selection A in particular, it's talking about um, our our release, uh, those who've been released from sin, that they've been set free, they've been forgiven. And um, that is so much of what we have been hearing about in Romans chapter 6 and uh, again here in chapter 7. Of course, Paul uh, talked in Romans uh, 6 about um, when we came to faith, we were united to Christ. We were baptized into him, it says, uh, into his death and to his uh, resurrection, that we were spiritually uh, united to him. And then he moves across to say, um, you, you, we used to be uh, slaves of sin, but no longer because, uh, as that psalm that we sang just said, we've been uh, set free and with our freedom, uh, we ought to give ourselves, we ought to become slaves of righteousness, slaves of the Lord. And then he uh, picks up here in Romans chapter 7, um, continuing to talk a little bit about uh, the believer's relation to the law and then, um, and then what it's like to live. Uh, what it's like to live as a believer, uh, feeling something of a struggle. We're going to not do what we've been doing in the past where we read our previous um, passage and then, and then our text for today. We're going to try to cover this entire chapter. Um, so we're just going to read Romans chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse 1. I'd remind you this is God's word. It's holy and inspired and infallible word. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive." But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this passage. And we do pray that you would help us as we meditate on it, as we unpack it, as we think about it. Lord, we would ask that you would help this, your word, to become more clear in our minds. And Lord, we do pray that you would equip us. Lord, we pray um, that you would equip us, uh, that we might grow in holiness Uh, We know that you have just told us uh, in Romans 6 that we ought to be slaves of righteousness. Uh, Lord, we need your help. Would you instruct us? Would you help us that we might grow as unto your glory? We'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but over uh, the years, I have been on uh, several diets. And... um, This will be some news to you, but twice in my life, I've lost more than 40 pounds. And I know uh, what you're thinking right now, probably. Third time's a charm, right? Well, maybe one day you'll get to know the skinny Jerry. I don't know how long he'll stick around, but you may be introduced uh, to him. Um, well, if you're like me and you've tried to lose some, some weight, you know the struggle. And it's, it's hard. It's painful, right? You want to lose weight. Maybe you need to lose weight. But, it, but it's difficult. You have the desire, this need. But you also like food. Maybe if we're being honest, you love food. And so you find yourself in this battle, right? You find yourself in the struggle. Part of you wants uh, one thing and another part of you wants something else. 
Well, in our passage, Paul discusses the struggle that we face as believers. It's an internal struggle that believers have with sin and with their relationship with the law. If you scan uh, this chapter, you'll notice how many times you see the word law all, all throughout the chapter. I counted them. There's 23 of them. In this passage, Paul describes the tension between the believer's desire to do what's right according to God's law and their ongoing experience of falling short and succumbing to sin. So as we look at this passage, we're going to ask, how can believers find uh, greater freedom in Christ? How can we find victory over sin? And you'll learn that you can find freedom and victory by recognizing the tension there is between the law and sin and acknowledging the inter- your internal struggle with sin and relying on Christ's deliverance to overcome it. And we're going to begin, we'll begin uh, to consider the text under our first heading, which is the law and sin. The law and sin. In Romans 6, uh, Paul talks about grace and sin, as I alluded to earlier. He says that grace doesn't give license uh, to believers to sin, right? You remember that, but rather it empowers them to live a new life in Christ. Paul says that believers have died to sin through their identification, through their union with Christ's death, and that they have been raised along with him to a new life, a life of holiness, a life of righteousness, a life of following after Christ. He encourages believers to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God and no longer under sin's dominion. And the chapter concludes by contrasting the consequences of sin and righteousness, highlighting the ultimate results of sin is death while the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. In Romans 7, Paul lays the foundation for understanding the believer's new life in Christ. He explains that through Christ's death and resurrection, believers are freed from the power of sin and now have a new relationship with God. And he gets into that in the first portion here. Um, He does this by continuing the discussion that he had at the end of chapter six. You remember Paul used the illustration of a master and slave to explain how the Christian should yield himself to God, that that we ought to be slaves of God. We belong to him. We ought to be fully committed to his service. And now he uses the illustration of a husband and wife to show that a believer has a new relationship with Allah because of his union with Christ. Look what he says. In verse one, Paul writes, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding only or on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. 
Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In Roman and Jewish law, a woman was bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. If she marries another man while her, while her husband is still alive, she is or was considered an adulteress. However, if her husband dies, she's free to, to marry another man, and she is not guilty of adultery. And Paul uses this marital analogy to explain the believer's relationship with the law before and after coming to faith in Christ. Before coming to Christ, believers were bound to the law, just like a woman was bound to her husband. The law held authority over them, revealing their sinfulness and condemning them for their failures to keep it perfectly. But through the death and resurrection of Christ, believers have died to the law just as the woman is released from the law of marriage when her husband dies. In Christ, we are freed from the law's condemnation and from the burden of trying to earn righteousness through the obedience of the law. Like the woman who is free to marry another man after her husband's death, believers are now free to be united to Christ, the bridegroom, and enter into a new and intimate relationship with him. In Paul's analogy, the believer is the woman, and the law represents the husband. But the law can't die, right? The Ten Commandments, they don't die. The moral law doesn't die. So Paul symbolically has the woman, the believer, die. In verse 4, he writes, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Believer, your relationship to the law has been dissolved through the death of Christ on the cross. Your relationship to the law has been dissolved through Christ's death on the cross. And as a result, you are now married to Christ. The law holds no claim. It holds no claim over you. Paul describes our new freedom in verses five and six. He writes, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. As a result of our marriage to the law being dissolved, um, it's, it's that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit. And when Paul says that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit, he's referring to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit, right, in the lives of the believer. Before coming to faith in Christ, believers 
were under the authority of the law, bound by its demands and unable to fully obey it due to the power of sin. And this resulted in a life marked by struggle and failure and condemnation. But through our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, we're set free from the law's condemnation and bondage. As a result, we now serve in the new way of the Spirit. Our lives are no longer governed by mere external rules and regulations, but by the internal guidance and empowerment of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The Spirit brings about a new way of living and a transformed heart. He enables us to live in righteousness and reflect God's love, and he gives us the ability to walk in obedience to God. Now we experience a dynamic and intimate relationship with God guided by the Spirit's leading and producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Instead of despair, there's joy. Instead of bondage, there's freedom. Instead of death, there's life. Believer, you no longer belong to the law. You belong to Christ. But you might be asking, if that's the case, then why am I struggling? Why am I struggling? As this letter continues, Paul addresses the struggle within. That's our second heading. The struggle within. Have you ever had someone in your life who pushes back on nearly everything you say? Um, you could have an opinion on the most innocuous thing. They, they disagree. I, I've had that experience. It's difficult. Uh, it tests your patience. Well, Paul expects pushback. He expects uh, objections. He expects questions. What good is the law then, Paul? Is the law bad? Is, is the law evil? What's the point of it? In verse 7, you see that he anticipates questions. He writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law isn't bad. It's not evil. The law serves to reveal and expose sin in our lives. The law isn't sinful. No, it brings awareness of our sinful nature and actions. Without the law, we wouldn't have a clear understanding of what is sin and what is not. The law has an essential purpose of revealing sin, even though it's not the cause of sin itself. And the law not only reveals sin, Paul says it also activates it. Consider verses 8 and 9. 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You see, the law exposes and amplifies the presence of sin in our lives. When the law reveals what is right and wrong, it seizes the opportunity to stir up all kinds of sinful desires within us. What, is, what does that mean? How, how are we to understand that? Well, picture a sleeping monster. You remember that one from the Bugs Bunny cartoon, the big red guy? Big red hairy guy. Um, picture a sleeping monster uh, symbolizing sin, lying still and harmless. Then a spotlight representing the law shines upon the monster and it wakens it up and stirs up chaos representing sinful desires. The spotlight doesn't create the monster but reveals its presence and triggers its activity. Likewise, the law doesn't create sin, but it exposes our sinful tendencies, making us aware of our need of forgiveness through Christ. The law not only reveals and activates sin, but it also kills, as verses 10 and 11 tell us. Paul writes, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. The commandments were meant to bring life and to reveal God's righteous standards, but something else happened. Instead of producing life, they showed the presence of sin leading to spiritual death. And in verse 12, you see that Paul continues by saying, so the law is holy, And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. The commandments don't cause death. Sin brings spiritual death. The law exposes sin's true nature and its power to lead us away from God's standards. It shows our inability to keep the law perfectly. It reveals our sinful nature and our need for God's grace. The law uncovers how far we fall short of God's perfection, and yet it magnifies the greatness of God's mercy and forgiveness through Christ. The law's goodness exposes sin's ugliness, leading us to seek God's forgiveness and salvation through faith in Christ. For Christians, the law of God serves a dual purpose. It acts as a mirror, exposing our sin and leading us to Christ for grace and forgiveness. Right? When we're aware of our sin, 
we need to keep coming back so we're not living under condemnation. We come back to Christ. It has that purpose. And it also becomes a rule of life, guiding us to live in accordance with the will of God and to reflect his character. We've talked about that in the past. It's like the family code, the way we live as children of God. But as our text continues, Paul describes something familiar to the followers of Christ. He describes that war within us, that conflict, that struggle. And Paul uses himself as an example. He talks about his own struggle with sin. He describes the struggle that believers feel within themselves due to the tension between their old sinful nature inherited from Adam and their new nature received when they are born again. This internal conflict arises because even after being redeemed in Christ, we still live in a fallen world and we possess remnants of our old sinful nature. Paul states the problem of the struggling Christian in verses 14 and 16 when he writes, or 14 through 16 when he writes, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Paul's emphasis is on the ongoing battle between the desires of the flesh, the old nature, and the desires of the spirit, our new nature. Paul acknowledges that even though he desires to do what is right according to God's law, he finds himself doing what he hates, succumbing to temptations the temptations of his old sinful nature. And in verse 17 through 20, he says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Notice that twice Paul says, it is no longer I who do it. He's not suggesting that it isn't him who's actually doing it. He's saying it's not what his renewed inner self in Christ desires to do. The struggle reflects the universal experience of believers, and it calls for a solution, a deliverance that could only be found in Christ. This leads us to our third heading, deliverance through Christ. Deliverance through Christ. I don't know about you, but I've been the beneficiary of the bread-making craze 
in recent years. And as I've uh, watched various breads uh, being made, I've uh, noticed what happens. Uh, the, The dough gets punched and it's deflated. It gets stretched out, it gets rolled, it it gets folded, it rises, it gets uh, punched down again. And they do that over and over again. And, And it reminds me of the struggle we see here in the text and that we experience in our lives as believers. We become deflated. We get stretched. We feel like we're being folded. And Paul describes this painful experience in verse 21 when he says, So I find it to be a law that when I struggle to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. As a follower of Christ, Paul genuinely desires to live in obedience to God's commands and to do what is right according to God's standards. He says that he struggles to do what is right. But at the same time, he delights in the law of God, in his inner being, in his heart. But he also acknowledges that the presence of sin still lingers in his life. This lingering sin nature causes him to stumble and to fall into sinful thoughts and actions, even when his heart's desire is to please God. Paul's words in this verse reflect the tension that believers experience. We know this tension. We know this struggle, the battle between the desires of the new nature and the remnants of the old nature. Despite the transformation that's taken place in our lives, the struggle with sin remains. The presence of evil thoughts and temptation is still close at hand. And what happens? Temptation often appeals to our desires. It appeals to our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. It aims to draw us away to what, from what we know is good and godly. And temptation takes various forms. It entices you to indulge in sinful behaviors. It beckons you to pursue selfish desires and to compromise your faith. Temptation can come from external sources such as the influence of others or our environment, or it can come from internal sources such as our own thoughts, our own emotions, our hearts. The nature of temptation involves a sense of allure. It makes the forbidden or harmful seem appealing or attractive. It attracts you even though you may be aware of the negative consequences. Temptation seeks to exploit 
your weaknesses and your inclinations, attempting to lead you away from God's will and from his plan for your life. Sin and temptation are insidious. And they must be dealt with ruthlessly. As Paul looked at the law and he looked at himself, in verse 24, he cried out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is a heartfelt expression of deep anguish and struggle with sin. Paul recognizes that the ongoing battle between his desire to do what is right and his tendency to do what is wrong and to fall into sin despite his love for God and his desire to please him, Paul acknowledges his fertility and the ongoing presence of sin in his life. Paul's lamentation in this verse reveals his awareness of his inability to overcome sin on his own. He recognizes that in his own strength, he is helpless to free himself from the power of sin. This cry of wretchedness emphasizes his utter dependence on God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. As believers, we must learn from Paul's heartfelt lamentation over sin. It shows us the need to be honest with ourselves and with God about our struggles and our weaknesses. It reminds us of the constant battle with sin and the importance of relying on God's strength rather than our own efforts. Paul's cry of wretchedness also points us to the hope of deliverance found in Christ alone who is the savior and redeemer from sin's grip. Paul asks, who will deliver me from this body of death? And in verse 25, he answers, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to him because it's he and he alone that can save us, that can free us from sin's grip. It's Christ who delivers us from sin's grip. He does this, of course, through his death on the cross. Jesus made atonement for our sins, providing for forgiveness and reconciliation by placing our faith in him. We are, you are, if you are in Christ, justified, and you are accounted as righteous before God's eyes. I know that some of you have heard that a thousand times. But stop, don't let yourself be dull to that. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven. You've been made righteous. You are no longer under the authority of the law. That's a big deal. 
Jesus redeemed you from the power of sin and the bondage of the law. His sacrifice purchased your freedom, liberating you from the dominion of sin and granting you eternal life. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus brought about your spiritual birth, transforming your heart and empowering you to walk in obedience and to resist temptation. If you're a believer, the Lord is working in you through the Holy Spirit, gradually conforming you into his image and empowering you to grow in holiness. Even if you feel like you're getting the bread-making treatment we talked about earlier. Jesus' resurrection ensures victory. We share in his victory. Death no longer has ultimate power over us. Now, I began this morning talking about dieting, right? And I said that it's hard. It's a struggle. Especially if you're married or you're living with someone else and you're dieting alone. If you've been there, you know the struggle. But praise God, we're not alone on the road to sanctification. We're not alone as we flee from sin and strive to be like the Lord Jesus. Not only do we have one another, but Jesus walks right alongside us. And we know from his word that it is his will that we would have victory. It is his will that you would have victory over sin. Believers can find freedom in Christ by recognizing the tension between the law and sin. That's the struggle we experience between our desire to do what is right according to God's law and the ongoing battle with our sinful thoughts and actions. We find freedom by acknowledging our internal struggle with sin and recognizing our inability to overcome it on our own. You must be honest with yourself about sin and temptation. It starts there. You must be honest with yourself and you must be honest with the Lord. Praise God, he already knows. He already knows. He's not gonna be shocked when you come and you tell him about what's going on in your heart and in your mind and in your emails, and in your web browsing, and at work. Whatever the struggle is, he already knows. But you must tell him. Do it in private, but say it out loud. Tell him what's in your heart. Tell him what you're struggling with. Say it out loud. As you do, you're being intimate with the Lord. You're going to grow in intimacy with him. He'll be, it'll only be you and him that know these deep things. Come to him. Tell him the truth. Be honest with yourself and with the Lord. When you rely on Christ's deliverance and grace, you demonstrate a humility and attitude of repentance. 
And this posture allows you to fully embrace God's grace and mercy so that you experience victory over sin's power. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we would begin by just humbling ourselves before you. Lord, you know each one of us. We are your body. We are one. And yet your body is made up of many parts, as you have told us. Lord, you know that each of us have different lives and different struggles, different temptations, that we are experiencing different levels of victory over sin. Oh Lord, we want to confess to you that we have been far from perfect. Lord, we would ask that you would forgive us. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me. And Lord, we would ask, um, you have told us about the struggle. We have not told you. And as we have seen this, your word, we identify, Lord. We know this struggle. We identify with the same thing. That which I will to do, I do not do. And that which I will not to do, that is the very thing I find myself doing. Lord, we would come humbly before you and ask that change would begin today. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to get, to come before you, to tell you everything, and to cast ourselves upon you for victory over sin. Lord, we'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.